Hey, everybody. I wrote a book. I'm super excited and I'd love for you to check it out. No Longer Denying Sexual Abuse, Making the Choices That Can Change Your Life is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Goodreads, anywhere that you read a book. So please check it out. And I've also launched my 21-week series, No Longer Abused, which is free. All you have to do is buy a copy of the book. For more information, go to nolongerdenyingsexualabuse.com and sign up for one or all of the 21-week series. And now, on to our guest. I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. My book client, Matthew Brownstein, did not come to me initially to write a book. Already an author of a collection of books, he was seeking advice on how to advance his readership and his authority. But after an hour call, I had basically convinced him to do an expanded edition of his hypnotherapy book that would be supporting his state-licensed Institute of Interpersonal Hypnotherapy. So now I've only been hypnotized once in my life. It was kind of a shoddy situation. It was in a bar by a showman. So I had little knowledge about the power of hypnosis, but Matthew has completely changed my whole viewpoint about the healing of the mind and body. And I'm so excited to have him on the show. Matthew, it's so great to have you here. Thank you, Kim. It's always a pleasure. So thank you for having me on. So I've heard this before, but our listening audience has not. Tell us the story of how you knew You were on the path of enlightenment and opening the door to this beautiful body of work. You were super young when you had this calling. How did that happen? Yeah, I'm always super cautious of the word enlightenment because I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know what that truly means, (laughs) Uh, even though we have a conference coming up called Redefining Facilitation, Embracing a Path of Healing and Enlightenment. I still always want to be really humble when I use that word. Yet something did happen to me when I was 19 years old. I was lying in bed. I had just finished making love with my girlfriend, just to be totally honest, because that's the truth of the story. But there was nothing unique or magical or special about that moment. Um, she was just laying there rubbing my chest, and all of a sudden, everything turned to light. Every, the whole room, everything, me, her, the trees, the window, everything was just light. There was love permeating everything. It was pure joy, pure peace, pure bliss. I used the word God there, maybe for the realistically for the first time in my life. Before I was more atheistic, agnostic, maybe agnostic. It was like, all right, if you show me, then maybe I'll believe something. And then right. I had an experience. And it was, you know, I, I was in college. I had taken like one religion class. So, you know, I, I knew about Buddhism, but I didn't even know how to spell it because that night I had written <laughs> <laughs> I had written 20 pages in a journal for the first time ever. And I looked back and I saw, like, I misspelled the word Buddhist. And I turned to my family members. I was like, everybody, family and friends, have you ever had this experience? Do you know what this is? It went away the next morning. So I became infatuated with trying to figure out how to have that again and to share it with others. Because I knew there was something really valuable there. One of my uncles, he said, have you ever heard of Taoist philosophy? 
And I'm like, no, but I wrote in my journal, D-O-W-I-S-T, which is not how you spell it. So <laughs> it's cute. I, I love my naivete at the time, but I was young and curious. So I was in college. I changed my major to religion, to philosophy, and then to religion, because the philosophers didn't quite give me the answer of how to duplicate the experience. It was way too intellectual. Like, you can try to prove God with your mind or not, but that's not giving me this experience that I want again. And religion talked about the divine in wonderful ways, but didn't necessarily teach me how to tap into it again. It was when I found the mystical branches of the world's religions that I was hooked. I said, wow, you can meditate and tap into this. You can pray, you can do things and have the experience. And it took about 300, exactly, actually, 368 days to tap into it again. After enough spiritual practice, I learned how to quiet my mind, open my heart, clear the blockages to the awareness of love's presence, as it said in A Course in Miracles. I was able to just keep tapping in. So then I was like, well, what do you do with that as a career? I realized like, okay, this is energy. It's just one big universal energy. So let me learn acupuncture and I can help to clear other people's blocks to the block to what's keeping them from feeling that energy, that love, that And joy. you're 20, you're 20. So what if I'm tracking this right? You had the first, you know, light experience at 19 and mm-hmm. then you're forever changed by this. And then you're on a quest. What, what were you, what was your game plan career-wise before the experience? Uh, I was liberal arts. I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and spirits I, I, like, this is your path. Yeah, I honestly feel like my life didn't have any, it wasn't bad at all. It was most people would be envious. It was just a very normal you know, upper middle class privileged life, but it didn't mean anything. And, and I didn't know what to do with my life until I had that experience. And I still didn't know what to do. I just knew I wanted that. And I actually thought I would just be a monk. I was like, oh, that that's it. All I care about is God or whatever we call that. So I'll live in a monastery, but I have parents who didn't like the idea. (laughs) Yeah, that was my next question is like, what? So we have the family, right? That's now going to have the opinion for, Uh oh, I'm not so sure we we, we didn't sign up for you being a monk. How how did this affect your relationship with your friends? In college, it didn't matter so much, but we would go out and party, I guess. I mean, can't even say I was a partier, but like, we, you know, we're in college. We're new at this whole going out and trying different things. And I always just felt awkward going to a bar, going to a party. I just wanted to go home and meditate. I remember that same <laughs> girlfriend came to, visit, she came to visit me. We were in different schools. And um, even when this wonderful, beautiful woman who I loved was in the room with me, all I wanted to do was meditate. <laughs> and, um, wow. So I don't talk to any of those people anymore. It's uh, what happened was just, I started going in my, and eventually I did live in a monastery. So I lost touch with all those people who weren't into spirituality or who would actually uh, debate with me in ways that weren't helpful. Like they often say in the spiritual traditions, keep good company, be around like-minded, high-thinking people. And when I have people arguing with me about the choices I was making, which were based on love and compassion, like I chose to be vegetarian. I didn't want to be harming anyone because my experience was oneness and oneness is we're all part of the same being. And if I hurt you, I hurt me. So how can I hurt another sentient being? And then everybody's just eating meat and partying and 
Um, it just wasn't. My, it <laughs> sounds wasn't my... so hedonistic <laughs> with the way um, you say it. <laughs> yeah, you know, like more power to them. Like you know, it's not to judge them, but for me, I just wanted to go meditate alone in the woods, and that's not really good for social life. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. And we, when we met, we really connected about the untethered soul and Michael Singer, and you know, his work going and meditating for ten straight hours, and. You uh, were also moved by his teachings, but you took your career in a different direction. You figured out how to take that oneness and how to translate it into learning about hypnosis and then eventually trauma. How did it lead you to wanting to help people heal from their trauma? When I was in the University of Florida and I started studying with teachers, of course, in the university, but outside, I came across Michael Singer and started living on and off at his temple of the universe for about five years. So I'm really well versed in Mickeyism <laughs> and on the teachers. Yeah. He would talk about blockages all the time. There were these samskars, or he was called samskaras, the block to the awareness of love's presence. And he would teach how to clear those. I said, okay, well, that's the answer. You know, that's, it's not about establishing the light that's everywhere. It's about clearing the blocks. So I went to Chinese medical college thinking, okay, that's the way you know, I could use acupuncture to clear these blocks. But I knew it wasn't quite it. It was, there's the blocks are more mental, emotional, and the energetic level wasn't quite getting there. Eventually, long story short, I found hypnotherapy, had a session myself. And in the middle of that very session, spirit was right there in my, Face that same presence. And it was saying, you are going to hypnotherapy school. You are going to be a hypnotherapist. Wow. I said, I said, no, I'm going to be a Chinese medical doctor. And the voice <laughs> said, no, right. you're going to be a hypnotherapist. I've had this conversation many times with that higher, wiser voice. It'll say it once. I'll be shocked. And I'll say, <laughs> no, I'll say it again, but that'll be it. No argument. It just goes away at that point. It's like, this is how it is. We know better than you do. So I started doing acupuncture and hypnotherapy training at the same time, and I was blown away with the power of the mind and how I was helping a lot of my friends in acupuncture school by using the power of the mind. And I was getting incredibly good grades in acupuncture school through hypnotherapy. I was seeing how we could eliminate pain through hypnotherapy. We can get to the root cause in hypnotherapy. And I found with hypnotherapy, we could essentially clear the blocks that Michael Singer had talked to me about for years. I was like, oh, this is a way to do it. My primary hypnotherapy teacher, Mr. Gil Boyne, he called this a therapy for the people. And that just spoke Ooh. to me so deeply because, you know, you can go through a university setting and get your PhD in psychology. But usually, I mean, back then anyway, it was divorced of spirituality and it right. had to be fully scientific. It was based on diagnosis, which is essentially judgment. And then largely it ended up based on medication because nobody else knew they didn't know what to do with you. <laughs> and right. I'm studying in college and uh, postgrad studies, teachings of enlightenment and the metaphysical healing teachings and being willing to think outside the box, and finding their answers to how to relieve human pain and suffering. And I just honestly, at least at the time, wasn't impressed with what I was seeing in Western medicine and Western psychology. Hypnotherapy gave anybody who is willing to just learn how to do it and to do it professionally, ethically, within the law, within the scope of their credentials. But like we can use the power of our mind to heal our mind and our hearts yes. and our bodies and our lives. And I never found anything that could do that as powerfully, as simply, and as holistically as you could with hypnotherapy. 
So tell us about interpersonal hypnotherapy. What what is that defining factor? Yeah, so that is our unique brand. I was running the school called okay. Florida Institute of Hypnotherapy for many years. And then eventually, I was in meditation one night, same thing with that higher, wiser voice. And I was <laughs> like, you know, in prayer, as you know, and I said, um, is what's the essence of hypnotherapy? Like, this is my whole life's work now. So it's transpersonal, right? It's like I was saying, the spirit, it must be about beyond the person tapping into spirit, right? Isn't it all about spirituality? That's the essence of my work. And the voice said, yes, and it's also interpersonal, meaning the interpersonal was beyond the highest I could conceive of. And so I started really meditating on why interpersonal? Why is that so important? And then I started realizing, you know, through again, like deep meditation on the theme, the work is about the sacred nature of transformational relationships, that when two people come together with the intention of healing or transforming or just making better, then, you know, it's what's in scripture, right? Like when two or more are gathered, I am there, that right. when two people come together with the intention to heal. So that was part of it, is realizing just from a higher, wiser voice that was beyond, you know, what I could conceive at the time was saying, look, this is the way to go. Over the years, I've discovered interpersonal is more than just the relationship we have with our clients. It's the relationships we have within ourselves. So mm. for instance, if you have a stress-induced headache, right? So you say, all right, I want to get rid of my headache. But let's say that stress is really just a lot of frustration, anger, and irritability, right? Because if you right. really get what are the emotions? And is it, isn't a headache also like if you really dig in, it's sort of like you feel guilt too? Isn't it related to some old guilt you could be feeling as well? Well, that's a big topic about what emotion causes what symptom. Uh, uh, but I'll just say generally now, let's say let's say it's guilt causing the headache or anger causing the headache. They're kind right. of the same, really. Or it's okay. fear causing the right. headache. Whatever emotion causes the problem, then we have to ask, well, what's causing those emotions? Our thoughts cause our emotions. Right? It's our belief systems that cause our emotion. If I believe I'm powerless, I might be getting angry and that's causing a headache. Or I believe I'm worthless and not good enough. That causes an emotion. It causes a physical reaction. So what is the energy imbalance? That's just like, that's the, that's the emotion. <laughs> like the emotional right. body and the energy body are essentially the same thing, simply stated. So what's at the root of all those negative belief systems? Well, those are memories, right? Past mm -hmm. events made us believe we're not good enough. We're stupid. We're useless. All the stuff in childhood, all the childhood programming, causes the negative beliefs, causes the negative emotions, causes negative behaviors and symptoms. But, you know, that's actually really basic, good hypnotherapy. But then if you start asking, well, what's in those memories? What's like the core of every negative memory you have? It's essentially about other people, either from commission right. or right. hurt me, like mom or dad made me feel this way. And that's commission, like they did that to you or omission. They weren't there when someone else hurt you or something bad happened. You weren't and, protected. You weren't taken care of. You were abandoned. Yeah. Right. Even if it was like dad did that, then the child is still like, well, where was mom? Why didn't mom protect me? So once you get down to the root of every problem, you essentially discover an unforgiven relationship, an unhealed relationship. Mm -hmm. That's the essence of interpersonal hypnotherapy. And that's the essence of a miracle, right? I was, because I was a religion major. I was saying, all right, if Jesus did that stuff in the Bible, if all these other saints and sages supposedly perform miracles, even if one miracle ever occurred in human history, why? Right? What's the mechanism of it? Of and that miracle, right. I dedicated my life to finding that answer. I mean, like, really, it wasn't just a 
like a side hobby. It was like a fluke. Yeah. So it's forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It's basically what you're saying is because if you talk about Jesus, I mean, Jesus had to forgive pretty major sin, right? Of being, you know, basically nailed to the cross um, Mm -hmm. and, and resurrecting if you're Christian. But you know, what's interesting is I'm hearing you talk about this and and we've talked about this and we're going to get to talking about your book like in seconds. But I just wanted to say this one point. It's almost like you're bypassing the long, endless train of talk therapy. Well, yes. And so I'm not bypassing any medical or psychological tradition or profession. It's just that there's something really valuable to doing what we're doing. So I wouldn't say it's an alternative to psychotherapy. I would just okay. say another approach to being happy and healthy. There's times when people should go into therapy, right? They should work with a licensed mental health practitioner. I work with the model of helping the able to become more able. So there's certain mm, people. I love outside, that. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. certain people who are outside the scope of our credentials as a hypnotherapist. So I want to say we're bypassing somebody going to therapy or like, I don't bypass medical doctors, right? You know, people go to doctors when they need to. But if you're not finding inner peace, you might want to come to me. If you haven't found, (laughs) you might want to come to me. If you're so stressed that it's causing all sorts of physical problems, you can go to your doctor to deal with the physical problems, but who's really helping with the stress? And talk therapy might help. Um, However, I have a lot of quote, talk therapists who go through my hypnotherapy training or have been my clients. And I ask like, why do you train with me? Or why do you, you know, why are you my client? And like, I'm not trained in the techniques you are. That's really what it comes down to. Right. It's right. That's not what they're given. Yeah. Yeah, When they're at medical school. Right. And yeah, or just, you know, going through a traditional psychology degree in a university, like I said, it's going to be divorced of spirituality. Maybe there's some programs now that are bringing that in and acknowledging it's important, but you know, 95% of the world has some spiritual religious belief. And every time a client comes in and they have some belief like that, I can run with that. So if you're a Christian and I say, okay, so we're going to get to the root of your problem. And then I point out an unforgiveness. It's kind of hard to deny, like you just said, like every, when you look at like, what would, what, what do they say in the Bible that Jesus was doing when he was performing miracles? Like you said, he was forgiving everybody. He was like, yeah, (laughs) they were all so bad, you know, they were all (laughs) such bad people, you know, in that time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we we had issues then, we have issues now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but yeah, either way, you know, whether it's 2000 years ago or now, if you get to the root of all of our issues, it really is an unforgiveness. So in A Course in Miracles, which kind of is a Christian theology, it teaches that there's one problem and one solution. The one problem is separation. We feel separate from that one light, that one love, that one truth. We feel separate. What's the one solution? Oneness. I had a yes. staff member, some, you know, in our organization, two staff members had an issue and this, they came to me and one said, you know, I don't know what to do. And I said, why don't you just go have a heart to heart and just talk to her? And I said, oneness is always a solution. An hour later, I get the email back. Oh, it's all, it's all resolved and you know, we're good now. It was just so people are just shocked, so shocked that that's the solution to just go open your heart and to connect and 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 come up with one solution, right? That heals. The ego is remarkably complex, yet spirit is remarkably simple. So, if you ask the ego to design a therapy or a style of facilitation, it's going to be very confusing. If you ask spirit. Well, just, you know, ask your deepest inner guidance. What's the answer? 
the answer is not unavailable to us. Right? It's not hard to tap. And we all know this, really. Mm-hmm. Like if you say, well, mm-hmm. love is the answer. I mean, anybody's heard a Beatles song understands that. Right? All you need like, is love. Right, right, we all, right. Yeah, we all know love is the answer. And then the question is, well, how do I turn to love? If like, it's just any relationship. I'm mad at that other person. I don't feel one with that other person. That person is part of the universe. And if I feel separate from you, another person, I will feel separate from the universe. How do I get to reconnect to that oneness? Well, I'm actually already part of that oneness. You can't get out of the universe, right? You can't get away from the <laughs> universal light that permeates all things. Like the presence of love really is everywhere. I don't beat around the bush with that one anymore. It's just like, that's what I woke up to when I was 19. Now I met it every day and tap into it you know, like it's just always there so it's not debatable for me and like you know um like you you know you you find religion you find god you find and it's like oh i found it meaning it was there but i like the idea that we don't find it it already knows where we are it's like you don't have to find god god knows where you right. are you, you just tap else. in yeah you just open to it and it's there and so how do you like what's the essence what's the one common denominator you know buddha he sat under a tree where he meditated a lot. And he's like, what's the problem? Why is there suffering? Why do we suffer? He didn't care if it was God or not, really. He just said, I just want to relieve suffering. What is the mm-hmm. cause of suffering? Um, he's just a man who wanted to relieve suffering. And when he got to the essence of it, he said, okay, there is suffering. I'll give you that. And then what's the second noble truth? The cause of suffering is essentially our false self. They often say the cause of suffering is desire. But you have to say, like, but who is in there desiring? It's a e. It's the ego. It's a false right. masquerading self pretending to be something it's not. And that self, which is a false self, is filled with our negative beliefs, filled with negative emotions, holds on to the past as if it's real, is quite often in attack mode. It's very much in defensive mode because it knows its house is built in sand, but it's trying to hold this structure together. That insane mind is the basis of so much of everything we do, including our methods of facilitation. But if you get down to how do we transform that? What did Buddha teach? What did Christ teach? What do the great masters teach us? It always comes down to forgiveness or a, in Buddhism, you might not hear the word forgiveness as much, but it's realizing the emptiness of that self. It's meditating and looking at it, not trying to escape it, not just sitting there and saying, who am I? And realizing, I don't think I know who I am. And that's where the word enlightenment really comes into my work, just to have anybody question, who are you? Because we live under this assumption that we know, and uh, quite often we're wrong. So in Zen practice, which is my primary path, in Zen, we teach don't know mind, have beginner's mind. Don't think you're smart enough to have this answer, right? What does the Bible teach? Something like, don't trust your own understanding. Yeah, keep keep learning, keep learning, you know, and go on this incredible journey. I kind of I I'm like I'm listening to you and I kind of can't believe that I was your book coach. I don't know how I kept up with you all those weeks. My goodness, you have so much material and 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 amazing enlightenment and I and a lot of it has seeped into me just by just by being around you. Um, let's talk a little bit about this book that you're finishing up right now. You wrote prior books by yourself. What was it like working with me? What was it like working with a book coach this time? I've joked many times. You always laugh when I do, so I'll say it again. You were <laughs> radically honest, and you read one of my books, and you just told me it wasn't all that good. <laughs> you know, honestly, I had 
I don't know if a book coach, I had like an editor who knew how to get me published. So I self-published those books. And um, yeah, you're like, these covers could be better. This text could be better. You're turning your school into a college. And this is like, you're a college educator, but you're not writing at a college level here. Um, so you just honestly pointed out, I needed to improve my the way my presentation, my books are. And I'm at a stage of my career where I was really able to take that to heart. I don't know 20 years ago if how I would have taken that very honest feedback. But now it's like, she's right. She's totally right. And I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say I don't know better. So working with you has been such a blessing to help me to outline what is interpersonal hypnotherapy, right? When I wrote the book, I'm more just stream of consciousness, like the way I'm right. talking. It's that words flow right. out of me, inspired by spirit. And uh, and that can come through in a book, but it I think it sounds better as a lecture than it does necessarily sitting there Exactly. Reading. Well, that's why I'm saying yeah. listening to you on a podcast, it's amazing because like you brought it all full circle back to what we were first talking, talking about, which was enlightenment. And then you ended it on enlightenment. And that's wonderful for a 30-minute podcast. But when it's a book, things have to be you know, broken into chapters and and given to the reader in a way that they can follow it and apply it, right? Less the stream of consciousness. And I think that you really rose to the occasion on that because I think you like saw that this is actually a way to teach people, right? It's not necessarily a stream of consciousness. Your school is designed to teach people, right? So the book needed to be reflective of that teaching. Do you feel now when you read through it in your final draft that you that it is an implementation of your teachings? It's beautifully aligned with the teachings. As I'm redoing our school's curriculum for the nth time again to keep improving and making it better, the book is going really in harmony with the way I'm doing it. And as you know, I'm taking my time rewriting the book or writing this version of the book because right. I'm redoing the school's curriculum. And Yes, by having it outlined, by having it well thought out. And you're great about saying, no, move this here, you know, change this in this way. And it, it is meant to be aligned like as a textbook for students to go through the school's training. And yeah, you've been extremely helpful in making that happen. Yeah. And it's and it's been a journey too to not squash the beauty of all you have to say and mm. not make it so rote that it's like some boring textbook, right? We're trying to keep some of that like, you know, panache in it, right? The the identity of you that makes you who you are. Do you think you've grown as a writer in this process? Yes, absolutely. Although I used to feel like I was a great writer because I was <laughs> arrogant enough to think so. <laughs> now I, I can just, anything that comes out of my fingers, you know, essentially when I'm typing is good. And maybe, however, you know, looking at it through your eyes and thinking like, so have I grown as a writer? I, I'm much more patient now. I'm willing to take this whole year to redo our school's mm -hmm. curriculum and to take a whole year to redo the book, where in the past, you know, I would have felt like, oh, like you and I have deadlines and um, I just need to write like with this sense of discipline. But as we're acknowledging, there's something about me is on like that spiritual level where I let spirit guide me. And if spirit isn't moving my fingers, it's not happening. So now it's a combination of using your structure, as I understand it, you know, the way you're guiding me, but also being sure that the spirituality, the flow, those kind of enlightened words are coming through. So I've sat down multiple times to write and I was calling it writer's block. And you're like, no, there's no such thing. And you're right. There was, I didn't have writer's block. I just was writing because I thought, hey, I've got, I should, right? Mm -hmm. I should write, but it's, 
spirit doesn't move through should. <laughs> so it doesn't. Uh, right? Exactly. So it's, it's really keeping, I don't want to even say integrating, maybe this is the right word, integrating the spiritual flow of knowledge and wisdom with structure, right? So like yes. the discipline to sit down and write and putting it into that outline format and you know doing it based on chapters that are aligned with our school's curriculum. So now you have we've pretty much finished the core of the book. Now we're redoing the or writing the introduction. And I sat down twice to write the introduction, three times, and it just wasn't flowing. I'm like, well, the book will come about when it flows, but you can't really force that flow. Like an artist you know, painting yeah. a picture, you can't just make that person do it. It's like when it's happening and moving through you. So yeah, I'm being patient. You're being patient with me in the process. And I really appreciate that for sure. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Do you think that you will write another book someday? And if you do, what would it be the same track? Or do you think you might do something completely different? I honestly thought I was done writing all my books because I've written five books and now this is going to be the sixth. I don't know that there's another book in me. So I'd like to think no. <laughs> um, as wonderful as books, if, if I had only written one, you know, I'm 50 years old now. So if I had only written one, part of me would have said, yes, I know there's other books in me. I don't feel like I want to keep writing more because it's not about quantity. It really is about quality. Right. I'd rather right. have a few books that really embody my life's work. And like, yeah, when I semi-retired in my early 40s, um, I had published the books. I had the school all established. It was largely automated with a lot of teachers now. And, you know, I was like paragliding and traveling the world. And But then when COVID hit, I started getting, you know, a bit more cloistered like we all do, you know, being staying at home. I'm like, let me put more time and energy into my life's work. Uh, but I still didn't feel like I needed to write any more books. Um, it was just when you came around, like, I think you can improve this. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> so um, Yeah. And that goes to a great point. It's like, now you have a book that's been improved, put your time and energy into marketing and making that book as accessible to as many people as possible and putting the time and energy into that, which can be, you know, years of work, you know, years of work to do that. What kind of advice would you give someone in the therapeutic field who's looking to write a book that has a body of work as large as the one you tackled? What would be like one piece of advice you would give them as a writer? Meditate. So anybody, therapeutic field or otherwise, uh, you know, we have therapeutic hypnosis, we have non-therapeutic hypnosis. And yeah, so I don't know if I'm even qualified to speak to certain people who are doing certain types of therapy. I would just say that anybody who wants to get a book out needs to get clear on who they are and who their message is. I love the Hindu or the Indian idea of dharma, meaning like purpose in life and um, doing things that are ad-dharmic, not dharmic, that are not in harmony with who you are is not worth any time invested in it at all. So in the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism, it says, it's better to do your dharma poorly than someone else's dharma well. Mm. So to write a book, that is just a, like, I could write a book now on real estate, but I'm not a realtor, right? So it's like, <laughs> if I really want to write something, it needs to be my truth, like my path. So I've only written books on meditation, healing, enlightenment, uh, hypnotherapy, because that's what I'm all about. So I would just encourage anybody, whether they're in the therapy field or not, only write what you're all about. Because like, you know, I'm, I'm on podcasts often. I was talking to someone yesterday and I was telling her I turned 50 recently. And she's like, oh, now you're focused on like legacy. I'm like, you're right. right? At this stage yeah. of my life, I care about leaving a legacy that has transformed the world in 
in the most powerful ways that I can. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend anybody do anything but that, or it's just going to lead to some form of upset. Upset. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been just such a pleasure to have you as a client and as a friend, and I look forward to your book releasing. Nice. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate you having me on, and it's great to be working with you. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. We love reviews. If you enjoyed our show, head over to your platform of choice to drop a review, share with a friend, or even better, if you want to write a book, be in touch. You can find us at KimOhara.com.